Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. Uh, welcome to the fourth edition of the Foxhole. Um, very exciting stuff. We've had a few great episodes the last few Fridays. Actually, we skipped last Friday, but the few Fridays before that. Um, some really great close friends and guests on boards uh, to discuss funny roasting stories, travel stories, and such. Um, this week, we're going to start pivoting towards more uh, dense material as it pertains to the coffee industry and such. Um, so we have on board for today's discussion as FOB as a pricing metric, Ali Newcomb, who runs Red Fox Sourcing Company, which encompasses Peru and Mexico, Adam, who's our lead and uh, kind of the founder of our work in Mexico, and Zach Fritzand, our Director of Business uh, Development. Welcome, everybody. We'll let uh, another minute go by here as the, as the room fills up and we get started. We have about half of our participants in already. Let's give us back here. Adams, what have you been drinking coffee-wise? Who got some re-ups recently. Um, got uh, some Tupac Amaru, single producer lot from uh, the homie Steven Rogers. Uh, Pipe and Tabor from Brooklyn. Okay. That was sent to me along with some of the Ecuador Tecasique that he's roasting. And then uh, thanks to you, I got us some of the variety. I'm, I'm drinking all Brooklyn coffee right now. Brooklyn roasted. And some variety of uh, Vilcanisa from northern Peru, Cobam. And uh, fresh, fresh craft Duramina. Pretty sick. Not the Duramina. I haven't cracked into it yet. It's really, really good. It's got yeah, all, all kinds of layers. Super okay. sweet. Limey, hoppy. Nice. Nano Genji 7 from Monix Coffee Lab the last couple of days, and it's gorgeous. Fire. Like perfectly, perfectly ethereal, you know, in that kind of like subtle Ethiopian way that only those coffees can do. Shout out Nano Genji for the COE. Yeah. Are we allowed to talk about Third that? Third place for the Wash Coffees. Yeah, totally. Cool. Totally. Highest scoring coffee from the West, for sure. It's a big deal. Ali, how's that Kope Bomb coffee you're drinking? It's delicious. I cracked into it this morning. And yeah, it's fun to be. I feel like I always get to like roast up and try pre-ships and, and those keep me going through the Peru times. But like the perk of quarantining in California has been getting to try all of our coffees on, on this side and different roasters and stuff. So it's good. Yeah, they're so nice. They're silky like full complete mm -hmm. coffees. Amazonas is a special place. It's the best. How about you, Zach? Um, we cracked into a blend from Carrier Roaster, uh, Carrier Roasting Co. Uh, up in Northfield, Vermont. Uh, part of the blend right now is Bella Pampa uh, from Peru. Um, Cusco. Yeah, Cusco. Um, and then the same as Adam, uh, we've been dipping, we haven't, we haven't cracked into Vilcanisa yet, but, um, we, uh, brewed the Duramina yesterday. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, Chit chat blend from Carrier. It's, uh, it's really, really smooth. Lovely. Sounds delicious across the board. All right, let's do it. We're, it's 11.05, shall we? Um, looks like we have most of you in the room. Thank you all for joining us again. Uh, as I just mentioned, we're going to touch on 
FOB as a pricing metric. Obviously, FOB is a really important term, free on board, and an important mechanism for understanding the supply chain to some degree. Um, is it as precise a mechanism in terms of getting money back to the farmer? We think that's a different thing. Uh, hopefully, most of you or all of you, at least some of you, have read the like really brilliantly insightful piece that RJ Joseph wrote for us. RJ is our content strategist at Red Fox. Shout out to RJ, whose writing and work is, is always amazing. Um, that kind of gets to the nitty gritty of it. And it was written because we wanted to put something out into the world to help people understand in case there was some confusion and we were starting to believe that there was some confusion as to how money works back through the supply chain. Um, the, the three more important terms that we'll touch on today are farm gate to FOB to X warehouse. Farm gate is the price that the farmer's being paid for their coffee directly, which in virtually every way is the most critical component to the entire discussion. How much are they actually receiving for their work and their efforts and their products that they're producing and delivering? From there, of course, the coffee has to be transported to either a receiving station or directly to a dry mill. And we'll go through a few different case studies uh, in Peru, Colombia, and Mexico. Um, so from the farm to either a receiving station or directly to a dry mill, of, of course, there's transportation costs there. Once the coffee is finally in the dry mill and being prepared for export, um, there's a loss that happens. You know, obviously we're sorting out first quality from second and third qualities. So there's a, a reduction in cost, and that's a, a cost that the, the miller will take on in a sense, but the producer is essentially losing. From there, the coffee needs to get packaged properly and then transported to the port. Uh, a lot of other costs in there as well. And once that coffee gets loaded onto the boat, again, free on board, that's where you get the FOB price. So there's a whole lot of action happening between farm gates and the actual coffee loading onto a boat. And that's kind of the gray area in between where we've wanted to raise the issue of people understanding uh, that FOB alone is not enough to understand how the supply chain works sustainably. Um, once the coffee's loaded onto board and moves towards the port of consumption, wherever that may be in the world, the coffee eventually gets through customs and strips into a warehouse, uh, and in which case a company like Red Fox sells the coffee uh, as X warehouse. So that includes all the transportation and insurance fees from port of origin to the port of uh, consumption and then the delivering of the coffee from there with our costs inside. Of course, the FOB price includes the margin for the exporter and the miller if they're two separate entities. Uh, often and in a lot of the cases with our partners that we work with at Red Fox, they're combined in one. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if doing something you want to add to that or either of you, Ali or Adam, before we keep going? Um, no. Yeah, it sounds, that's a really good overview, Aleko. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, should we discuss our, our thoughts on exporting, Ali? Yeah. Um. I think for exporting, there's there are obviously these, you know, there are different models in some cases, and uh, where where we work, the cooperatives are also the exporters, and there's always the option of, uh, like Red Fox is a registered exporter, 
in Peru and we always have the option of exporting, but it's something that that license is something that we use very cautiously because export numbers, exporting in general is like a critical piece of what the cooperatives do and the service that they provide. And we just, we really don't want to take those numbers away from them. So unless it's unavoidable, we try to always make sure uh, to let the, the cooperative or the association that we're working with export the coffees that we're purchasing. Well, like, I don't yeah. know if you have things that, to add to that. I mean, we have our, our exporting license in Peru and we will have our exporting license in Mexico here in a GIF uh, for the situations where we do need to export on our own, but typically, you know, the Red Fox model is to be collaborative and to work in conjunction with uh, each of our partners in the supply chain the whole way through, not to cut any of them out along the way. Uh, while we do finance parchment buying in certain parts of Peru and, and likely eventually in Mexico, uh, we still let the coffee move through the supply chain business as usual as it always has historically. Um, one quick note that I didn't mention in the beginning, if anyone has questions, please feed them into the chat box and we'll get to as many as we can later on in the, uh, in the webcast. Adam, any thoughts from your end in the marketplace on how uh, FOB has moved into this more of a structured parameter for buying with different buyers on the roasting side or even the importing side? Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're starting to see some people, you know, I mean, I, I get that it's part of the conversation and I think it's an industry right now. It seems to be in sort of an internal industry like conversation uh, that we're having around like kind of creating metrics and getting money back to farmers, which I think is the, all of our, all of our interests lie in the same thing and then keeping coffee for the future and making sure if farmers aren't making money, then that's just not going to happen. So I think that's the bottom line, but we're starting to see people already make, you know, certain business decisions and marketing decisions and all that based on the FOB number. And it just feels like, we're trying to jump to a conclusion too quickly um, or, you know, or at the same time, I, I you know, I worry about uh, confusing the consumer. Um, I think we're kind of taking some of this, some of this initiative that as an industry, we're like bouncing ideas off of. And then we're um, you know, we're just, we're, it's moving maybe a little too quick without addressing the complexity of it and the diversity of the supply chain from, from mutual origin. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, that kind of, we talk about it a lot. I think about it a lot. Like why, you know, why certain decisions are made by certain companies um, in the past and, and currently. And I, I just want to, you know, make sure that uh, the, the focus is on the same thing. It's like, you know, just making sure that farmers are getting paid and not just on like solving a, a marketing metric or, you know, saying that you're doing something that um, maybe doesn't reach the, reach the goal that we're all, we're all going for. I don't know. Yeah. Anything else to add on those topics or shall we jump into the case studies? We can jump in. You wanna start, Allie? Sure. Um, so I actually wanted to talk through, we work with about 18 different cooperatives in Peru and I wanted to talk through two of the different ones we work with in different regions and just how the realities of individual producers can vary and also the logistical and operational costs of the cooperatives. So I picked um, 
two different producers who represent sort of like the typical profile for their cooperatives. And I'm going to focus on our base price, which generally speaking is the price that we're paying for a clean, sweet, 84, 85 point coffee. Um, we have three different price tiers depending on the quality of the coffee. And we definitely always want to incentivize and reward quality. But the reality is that um, I think coffee is a volume game and a significant amount of the coffee that we purchase fits into this base category. So overall, I think the place where like where we as a company can have the biggest impact, and I think we all agree on this, is by making sure that producers are receiving the highest base price possible. The first producer I want to talk about is Marilu Lopez Padilla. Marilu is a member of Copam, which is in it's um, it's in the Department of Amazonas in northern Peru. And our base price for Copam is two forty FOB. So of this two forty, the producer receives a dollar seventy five. Marilu lives in Beirut. It's a little community about two hours away from Aguas Verdes, which is where Copan's main warehouse is. And she does all the work on the farm herself. Um, she delivers her coffee during the, the harvest season. She delivers it on Thursdays to the Copan um, Collection Center, which is right in the middle of like right in sort of downtown Beirut. Um, so she hires, uh, it's called a motocarga. It's essentially like a motorized tricycle. And it's about a 10 minute ride from her house down to the collection center. She, she pays 80 cents to have her, her coffee transported down there. And then when she delivers her coffee, she receives a payment from Copam of um, 75% of the Red Fox base price. So about um, $1.30 a, a pound. Um, from there, Copam trucks the coffee to their warehouse in Aguas Verdes. They do a preliminary evaluation, they send us samples, they transfer all the parchment we approve into Grain Pro, and then they move it to the dry mill in Buda, which is, um, it's a 14 hour drive, which is long, but it's a, like a very easy paved drive. Um, the coffee gets milled in Buda, and then the container is, is loaded and inspected at Norandino, the dry mill, and it's delivered to the port, which is an hour away. And as far as costs are concerned, Copam is responsible for everything that happens from when the coffee is picked up in Beirut until the container is loaded on the vessel in Buda. Um, and then to contrast, I want to talk about another producer, Paulo Yakta. He's from the Valle Inca Association in Cusco. So our base price in, for Valle Inca is a little bit higher. It's 245 FOB and the price the producer receives ranges um, depending on a few different things. One is if they need a payment upfront or not. Um, Vyanka has really limited financing. A lot of like the more established co-ops have loans either from banks or from um, social lenders like shared interest or root capital. Um, so they're able to access financing at, at really good rates. Um, Vyanka is a really new association. They, they just turned three in um, January. So they're still kind of getting on their feet and they have very limited access to financing at high interest rates. Uh, another factor is whether they receive any tools or materials up front, like if the producer receives mesh for drying beds or anything like that. Um, and then also the yield of the coffee when it's milled. So the conversion from parchment to green and, and depending on how high that rate is, the price is higher. Um, so last year, the base price ranged between $1.55 and $1.95. Um, and, and this producer Pablo received the equivalent of about $1.76 a pound for, for his coffee. 
So all of Vienka's members are really remote. Um, the association's main warehouse is in Calca, which is about an hour from the city of Cusco. And to get there, you have to go over at least one, and in some cases, two or three, 13,000 plus foot passes to get to any of their members. Um, so Pablo and his four sons produce coffee on, on separate parcels in a community called Huaynapata. And they, um, they have a system called Aini, where basically they, they take turns helping each other out on their farms. And then getting the coffee out is quite complicated. Um, Faya Inca sends a truck to pick the coffee up, but of course there's no cell phone service out there. And so what Faya Inca does is they send an agronomist out to talk to um, the, like the local representative in Huaynapata, his name is Valentin. Um, he's paid by Faya Inca to serve as sort of a facilitator. And Valentin then spends a day going around to the different members and letting them know um, like, you know, bring your coffee to, to be picked up on X day, bring it to the side of the road. Um, so it's about an hour from Pablo's farm to the road and he and his sons um, carry the coffee up on their backs. So it's a really labor intensive process. And then someone from Bayanka meets them to collect the coffee. And in Pablo's case, he receives about 50% of the base price up front. Um, from there, Valle Inca trucks the coffee back to Calca, which is eight and a half hours from Huaynapata on like a windy dirt road for most of the way. Um, Prudencio, who's the, he's the manager of Valle Inca, he and his team pull samples. They transfer the coffee to Grain Pro. Um, they cup and send us samples. And then the coffee is stored in Calca until we're ready to mill it. So at that point, Valle Inca trucks the coffee to the dry mill in Lima, which is another 20 hours. And then it's milled, um, similar to Copam, gets like inspected, the container is loaded and it's sent to port. And again, as far as costs, everything from when the coffee is picked up on Pablo's farm in Huaynapata until it's loaded on the vessel in Lima is covered by Valle Inca. Um, so yeah, I think this, the story of everything that's behind the FOB price is really complex. And I think even within the same country or the same co-op, uh, context is key, you know. Marilu is spending an hour delivering her coffee for Pablo takes the better part of the day. Then Marilu is paying someone to move her coffee and Pablo is doing it himself. Um, other production and time costs are definitely gonna vary from place to place. Like something as simple as a machete or a tarp is gonna cost more in remote areas. And then transporting fertilizers or any other materials a producer is gonna need, it's just gonna cost more if you're further away. Um, so you have to think about also like all the services the, the co-op is providing and what those cost and I think like in the case of Vyanka versus Copam, Vyanka's cost of doing business is just higher. There's no way around it. Um, their producers are so remote that everything from like visiting producers to provide training, uh, transporting coffee, all of that just costs more. It's a great breakdown. Uh, just to sort of re recap, Ali, um, in the case of Vyanka, the base price of 176 that's paid back to uh, the producer level, um, and then our FOB price to Vyanka is 240. So there's basically a 64 cent uh, in there for the producer organization to cover all their costs that you that you talked through. Yeah, for Vyanka it's 245. So the price getting back is almost the same, um, even though we're paying a little bit more to Vyanka, but and Vyanka has like a very lean 
and um, like hardworking <laughs> operation, but I think their costs are just higher. Quote bomb, interestingly, it's in like this national, um, it's like in a national reserve. And so the organization was actually started by Conservation International. They have a lot of, um, they're a lot of backing from Conservation International, whereas Via Inca was started by Prudencio. We were actually like buying coffee from him before he'd ever even formed an association. Um, and so it's like a very much more like boots on the ground. Um, it's like, it's a lean, lean operation, but their costs are really high. It's really good. Um, <clears throat> we have questions from Victor Reyes and Sergei Kutrovsky. Bear with us, please, you two. We'll get to those after we finish the case studies next, but we will answer both questions. Thank you for putting them out there. Um, anything else you want to add about the Peru case studies, Ali, Zach, Adam? I personally, I actually, let me jump in. I think that they're both critical and the way that both of those specific instances, uh, examples operate are almost like two different countries where Cope Bomb is in Amazonas and what they have access to at a quicker rate even the roads alone, the quality of the roads is almost like a completely different planet than where Valle Inca, Valle Inca operates way, way out in Cusco in the Calca Valley. I mean, there's, their producers there are completely isolated and shut off from everything else. So the moving of the coffee is a real labor uh, and has real cost attached to it. Yeah, I think, um... Like for me, the first layer is knowing that a higher FOB price doesn't necessarily correlate to a higher farm gate price. And then like the second and really critical piece is um, contextualizing the farm gate price. And so um, like the farm, not only for the cooperative, but also for the farmer, the costs are just different and you really have to get into understanding those before Right. you can like have a good understanding of whether you're paying right. the right price. Right. And all of those costs from Farmgate to port are being incurred by the producer as well. Right. Um, okay. Should we move on to Columbia? Yeah. Great. I want to pop that model up real quick. I'm going to discuss Asor Cafe which is uh, a group located in, in Calca. They, they kind of straddle the border with Huila just an hour outside of La Plata, but on the Calca side of the border. A really amazing group. That area is also known as Tierra Adentro. Um, special, special climate, special farmers, really well organized. The group is one of the strongest groups we work with anywhere. And also uh, our oldest relationship at Red Fox and for me personally. Um, so, I started with them in 2006 and have been buying since virtually every year uh, and for well over a decade consecutively now. The, the producers are split off into now, they, they got as big as 600 members uh, in size as a group, um, but have had some fracturing and they kind of redid things and made it smaller and tighter again, which I think, which was very much done intentionally to have a more cohesive working group. Um, so now there are 
maybe just over 400, if 400 right now, members of Astor Cafe. And they're spread out in different veredas around, uh, around Pedregal, Insa, and San Antonio, uh, which are their own little, little counties and municipalities, essentially. Um, places like if you see on our list, Agua Blanca or La Palmera or San Jose, um, San Vicente, Guanacas, La Milagrosa, Alto de la Cruz, those are all coffees that are coming from Master Cafe in that area. Most of the farms in that region are two to three hectares in size. Some of the bigger ones are five or six hectares that are planted, but those are pretty rare. They're pretty much in that like classic kind of size for Colombian smallholders. Um, coffees are really beautiful. And there's, you know, tons of Tipica and Katura still out there, a little bit of Bourbon as well. Anyway, Astra Cafe strategically has warehouses spread out all over the area in the countryside. So it's easier for farmers to deliver uh, in their specific area without having to go to one centralized site. And it's also easier for the association to manage inbound coffee because they're not taking it all in one place. They're taking it in different areas. There's a station in San Jose that encompasses Palmichal and Belen and San Miguel and some of the coffees from that area. Uh, the warehouse in Pedregal has coffee come in from Agua Blanca, Alto de la Topa, La Palmera. San Antonio has its own um, warehouse for all of the coffees coming from those veredas and in Sa as well. Um, the coffees from there are sampled at the main cupping lab in Pedregal. Uh, and the team is really well trained and, and skilled at cupping. Uh, we do a lot of cupping there ourselves, probably two or three rounds of buying a year there, or they're doing a little bit of pre-filtering for us before they send the coffee to us uh, in Berkeley for assessment. Um, from there, after approval, the coffee's taken to our export partner in Popayan, who is Condor currently. Um, they're strictly providing a service of receiving the coffee. They finance the, the parchment buying for us in Colombia, which is really a great uh, asset to have. They're great partners. Um, they prepare the coffee for export, package the coffee for export, and then it ships from either Buenaventura or Cartagena. It depends where we're shipping coffee. You know, as always, most of you know who are buying coffee from Red Fox, moving coffee as quickly as possible is a critical element. So there's a lot of moving around there. You know, from the farm, it's, it's close, 10 to 20 minutes uh, after the coffee's dropped off or it's getting picked up by the association. Another 20, 30 minutes from there to the association warehouse. It's a few hours, three to four in a big truck from Pedregal to Popayan and kind of an arduous drive. There's been shipments that have been stolen over the years. Uh, you know, there's a lot of investment lost in there. And from the dry mill to the port is usually an overnight drive. Um, from there, the coffees leave and come to us. So we start with baseline pricing uh, direct to the farm in Pedregal, where we're doing last season, typically in May is when we renegotiate the strategy for the coming year. Last year for our baseline qualities, 84 point quality, we were paying 1.5 million pesos per carga. Uh, and that's probably a really rough number for some of you to understand. At the time, the normal price for coffee uh, of the same quality was seven to 800,000 pesos per cardiga. So we're, we're upwards of 40% extra on top for the baseline price. 
For 86 point coffee, we paid 1.25 million. For 87, we paid 1.4 million. For 88s and 89s, we paid 1.5 million pesos per carga. And for 90s, we paid 1.7 million pesos per cargo. So pretty significant money across the board. A lot of the coffee falls in that 84 to 87 point range. Uh, and there's lesser that's coming in at 88, 90. It's just uh, what's available in the region, but the, the prices getting back are, are pretty significant. And we can monitor exactly what's going back to the farm. The association keeps uh, 100,000 pesos per carga to facilitate uh, operations in the warehouse, with the cupping lab, uh, transportation. In the, in the case of Red Fox, we do something we don't do in every other instance, which is we actually pay the transport ourselves for the producers from Pedregal and Insa, the main association warehouses, to the dry mill. Uh, so we absorb that cost on top of, uh, of co on top of our other costs to the farm level as well. Yeah, that's Asur Cafe in a nutshell. Zach, you're muted. That's awesome, really good overview. Thank you. Great, you're welcome. Um, Adam, you wanna talk us through one of them in Mexico? Sure, we can dive into one of those. Um, we're a little bit newer in Mexico than Colombia. How many, how many years have you been buying Asur Cafe? Since 2006. Yeah. And Peru, we've been established for a few years now. I, th I also think that like in the case of Colombia, you have so much history there and you've been traveling there a lot. It helps to just the, the whole trust is a big, big thing. Right. And I think that like knowing the, the, the farmers knowing who you are and having that trust over the years really, really goes a long way. And I think like in Peru, having established our office there has helped to establish a lot of the trust that, um, you know, that we need to build these things. And then now in Mexico, as we've for the first year put in our office and had a team on the ground and we're, we're present all the time, it's helping to build the trust. I think a lot of these supply chains have, uh, particularly with smallholder farmers, there's been a lack of an erosion of trust over the years in terms of like, you know, seeing a market grow um, in some cases, the, spe the high end specialty market, let's say, and then maybe some of them feeling left out. And so I think there is a lack of trust and, and particularly in Mexico, I think, um, I don't wanna to dive too far into this aspect of it, but it's where fair trade started, right? It's where like Oaxaca is where fair trade coffee began this idea of like, let's set a benchmark FOB price uh, to, to have a, a democratically formed organization of farmers to sell their coffee at a premium. So when the 80s, when that came out, you know, it was a really great idea. And I think even into the 90s, it proved to really uh, provide a lot of growth and drive uh, more profitability for farmers, certainly more organization um, and, and kind of community projects and things like that. But in my opinion, that type of uh, larger scale certification that started feeding more and more into larger buyers uh, didn't necessarily bring the farmers along with it in terms of their profitability. Not in every case. Uh, a lot of what we buy and almost all of what we buy in Peru is fair trade certified. So it's not, you know, I'm not like saying that that is necessarily the evil. It's, uh, it's more of like knowing, knowing what's happening down the line and making sure that everybody's being taken care of. So in the case of Mexico, as we've come in, um, some of the higher quality coffees are smallholder farmers in, in pretty remote indigenous communities in Oaxaca. And a lot of, many of them have been a part of uh, different associations and cooperatives over the years. And a lot of them don't want to be a part of that anymore. So we've kind of had to adjust there 
and not work through co-ops. We do, we, there are some cooperatives in Chiapas and in Veracruz and even in Oaxaca that we are buying from, we do buy from, but a lot, what we're seeing is a lot of interest in selling us coffees coming from individual farmers or in certain communities where there's a community leader or a family member that is organizing people you know, not necessarily formally, but informally into sort of like clusters of, of higher quality that uh, people that, that believe that they can sell into this market and opportunity that we're, we're, that we're providing. Um, so we're having to kind of talk to them in local currency and local weights um, and in terms of how to, you know, when we start seeing, even before we start seeing offers, what's our base price going to be? And then we've had to then work into finding supply chain partners who will mill, potentially even finance that coffee and export it. Um, in some cases with farmers, some of them are willing to wait to get paid till the coffee gets exported. So um, they'll actually receive a slightly higher uh, price per kilo of parchment delivered um, if, they, if they don't need to receive financing. In some cases, we'll use a local partner that, that's exporting a million of coffee to finance it. Um, so there, you know, we're having a lot, there's a lot of just complex conversations. We always try and in, in, in these cases in particular to be the highest payer. So the, the case that I want to talk about is, uh, San Pedro de Yosotatu. So it's a really small community in the Mixteca region of Oaxaca. Um, this is an organization that Madalena Lopez is, uh, she's been organizing a, a group of farmers It started with, uh, I think 12 last year grew to more than 40 people. Um, over the last three years that we've been buying it, and this year um, it's it's still hovering around 40 or 50 people. Um, They're trying to sell us coffee there. Um, she wants to have a direct negotiation with us in terms of like the price that we're paying farmers as a base price level. Uh, and I don't think it would necessarily work in every community, but in terms of quality, I think that one really important aspect is this: is we can't just like pay whatever for any coffee, right? Like we understand the market, we understand what our buyers are looking for and asking for and pushing in terms of quality. So we can only work, this only really works in areas where we can source high-end coffee or potentially high-end coffee. So in case of Yosutatu, they're at 1,700 meters, 1,800 meters. Um, they have all Bourbon and Tipica. Uh, there are some really good practices happening in terms of picking. Um, some of the farmers have started to manage their own nurseries and replant and things like that. So. Um, we see a lot of just like on the ground uh, motivation and uh, opportunity for a high for high quality and increasing quality year over year. So what we've done there is say, look, okay, what are the basically the only alternatives they had was to a sell into a co-op or b sell to the local coyotes. It's kind of a funny joke that I've tried to use in the past is that we're foxes, not not coyotes. Uh, I don't know if it's really gone over that well at a lot of times. It's hard, it's hard to tell jokes in other languages, especially when a lot of times it's their third language. But uh, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so we said, what are the local coyotes paying? You know, in this case, it was for between 45 and 50 pesos per kilo of parchment for whatever parchment, not looking at cup quality, not looking at, you know, rendimiento or yield or what's, what green coffee is going to come out of that parchment in terms of taking out the defects and the parchment weight and all that. Um, and then the local co-op was paying, you know, four to five pesos per kilo above that. So maybe 55, maybe up to 60 if that co-op had some really good agreements. So we came in and said, well, what do you want? What price do you need for your coffee that we, you know, that we, and we'll see if we can, it's workable. And we, you know, this will be based around quality. We have a minimum quality standard in terms of what the cup has got to be. And then in terms of what the yield has got to be. 
So they, they said that we want 80 pesos per kilo. So almost double uh, what the local market was sort of paying. Um, and, and, we, and we started getting samples from the farmers. It, it becomes a more tedious process. So our team um, invests a lot more time in managing sampling. So we'll receive over 100 samples from this group, maybe 80 to 100 samples from this group because a lot of them have two different plots. We keep those separate. Some of them will have a plot a little higher, and a plot a little lower. Um, so they'll have to identify and mark each point. And then it all hinges on uh, uh, the, the representative samples that they're sending us then matching what arrives to the warehouse. Uh, so getting it to the warehouse, we work with a local exporter in Miller who has a truck and is willing to, um, in this case, finance the parchment. So pay an upfront premium price of 60 pesos per kilo, send, send their truck up, collect the coffee on one day, give a receipt to every farmer. Um, you know, this is like a 14 hour process of collecting the coffee. The farmers don't have to bring it anywhere. They do all their own work, by the way, I guess I skipped that part. They, on the farm, they do all their own work. Um, none of them in this community hire labor. They're either helping each other or using family labor to, to pick the coffee. Some of them might hire one or two people. Some of them that have multiple, if they're a larger family of multiple plot and all the coffees is ripening at the same time, they might hire one or two people locally uh, to help with the picking. Um, but they'll depulp and, and ferment and wash and dry their coffee all on their own at their house. Um, so in this case, the truck showed up basically in their community to collect the coffee um, finance that parchment, pay them the, the premium, and then bring it down to the mill where we then resample the coffee. Uh, that miller, um, you know, takes uh, a, a premium, I think. It's a, it's a fair, it's a good price, but we are also interested in them making money on this. We don't want to squeeze anybody out of this deal. We want everybody to be profitable. Um, so they're, you know, getting, getting paid for their services of sending the truck up, for financing the parchment, for them milling, uh, bagging, uh, you know, buying the local grain pro bags from the local distributor, um, getting the, the jute bags printed, um, and then sending that coffee to export. And in the case of Yosutatu, it's about a six hour drive, um, but the drivers do have to leave the night before. Um, a bit, you know, a big issue that we talk about a lot is currency exchange. I mean, I haven't really, before like being involved in buying in Mexico, one year to the next, if the peso to the dollar, it, it's been super volatile the last couple of years. So in some cases, the exporter, for paying the same price FOB year over year, they may not be making as much money. Um, we have to always keep that in mind. The cost of gas, like for that truck to go out the night before, spend the night and then come back can, can, can vary drastically. And so we're having to always kind of keep these conversations live and understand what, you know, what people are facing and, um, and be aware of that. And so the, the cost that we pay for 80 pesos per kilo translates right now, if you look at sort of the average you know, conversion rate of 20 pesos to $1, about $1.82 per pound that the farmer receives for the parchment, like net. Um, and then if their coffee, uh, that's for the 84, 85 score. If their coffee score is 86 or 87, um, they're making 210. If their coffee score is above an 88, they're making closer to 275 or $3 a pound. Um, so yeah, I think that that's one case. I mean, I think Another really interesting new uh, relationship for us is in Veracruz uh, with a co-op that we're working with there that buys cherry and they process cherry. Most of the coffee processing in Veracruz happens by cherry coming in. So their price, their base price uh, to their members is going to be around 15 pesos per kilo of cherry compared to, you know, in this case, 80. But those farmers also have, uh, sorry, in the case of Oaxaca, 80 pesos per kilo of, of dry parchment. Um, so for cherry, those farmers have maybe five or six hectares, whereas the farmers in 
uh, Oaxaca have one hectare or two hectares at most. Um, so I think there's also economies of scale uh, where we're trying to make sure that a farmer that only has one or two hectares and is delivering dry parchment doing all that extra work is rewarded uh, correctly. And, and, you know, I still, I still think we have a ways to go. I don't know necessarily yet that $1.80 per pound as a base price in that community um, is going to, you know, is going to change their life. Uh, I mean, I think it's allowing them to invest a little bit more, to be a little bit more comfortable. That's the only, from what I've seen, it's the only income that many of these folks have all year round. So they're getting paid once a year. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that, you know, we're still kind of like learning what, you know, what is a, a sustainable price. And I think a big part of that is understanding cost of production in that context compared to even Veracruz or Chiapas where there's different scales, things like yeah. that. So. Adam, you got a question. Uh, why don't farmers want to be part of cooperatives anymore? Uh, well, I think it's just a back to the trust thing. I think um, in this particular case, they didn't feel like uh, they were getting any extra money or any extra value of being part of a co-op. Um, I think certain co-ops have, have a history of uh, maybe corruption uh, of not being fully transparent with their members in terms of what the you know prices are, uh, what they're getting in the in the in the market. Um, the co-ops become really big businesses in certain cases. There are two or three layers of 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 associations and co-ops um, that have their own banking systems and things like that. And I think if a farmer is saying every year I'm not getting any more money and they're not, you know, they're not able to reinvest or maybe in some cases buy more land or um, replant uh, when they need to. Uh, and then they're like, this isn't working. I got to find my own way. So they're, they're trying to take, I think their, their livelihood and their profitability into their own hands and find buyers on their own. Great. Um, that's great. Lots of good insight there. Valuation of currency and, and the, the constant change is a critical issue in all three of these countries and any coffee producing country really very volatile um, and has dramatic impact like you mentioned. Shall we move on, move to, on to the Q&A section? Yeah. Sure. Victor Reyes had the first question for us. Um, how do you know what is a proper sustainable base rate is this separate or does it include cost of production costs? Right, I mean, that's, that's the heart of the issue right there. Um, we have invested a lot of our time and money in the last 12-ish months to our social impact collection. Uh, and eventually we'll be putting out a report. This current situation has kind of put a damper on that for a second. Um, but we're starting in Peru because that's where Ali's based and where we have uh, a larger number of staff who can help as, as well as third party people who are helping with this. Um, anyway, understanding the cost of production is where this starts and kind of like the big differentiation, big differentiation in why farm gate price matters and FOB price matters less. Um, so getting to that is really a case by case situation, Victor, where you need to work with the producer to uncover their costs. In some instances, they know what it costs for them to produce coffee. Unfortunately, we found in most instances, they don't. They don't really understand uh, what it costs them to deliver their parchment or their cherry to the station that they're delivering to. 
don't know if you have something to add on top of that, Allie, or not. But yeah, I think um, I think at Red Fox, in terms of cost of production, we we do it in sort of this like unscientific way through conversations with cooperatives and um, and the producers that we work with. And through those conversations, one thing that's definitely become clear is that most producers don't know their cost of production or or maybe they know their costs, but they're not taking into account all of the the labor, like the unpaid labor of um, of themselves and their their family members. Um, as like Aleko, as you said, we we have this impact or like sort of cost of production study planned. We we designed the the survey last year and, and all of the methodology and the data collection was supposed to be taking place um, as we speak, but that was to get like real numbers in in with our main suppliers in Peru for um, for their actual costs, including all of those, um, you know, all the labor costs that aren't, that aren't taken into account. Uh, I personally feel really good about the prices that we pay, um, in like in these conversations with, with producers and with co-ops. And I, like, we know that they're always, uh, or almost always the highest prices in their area for, for the volume that we're producing. I mean, that we're, um, purchasing, but I think the next step for us is definitely getting an understanding of, the cost of um, production on like an individual producer level. And I, like, I think everywhere it's a really big task and that's some of the appeal of NFOB price is it, like, it's easy to verify that and to know that, but I, I think it's just like not anywhere near enough. Right. And that the, I mean, I feel like this is one of the intangible things that the industry at large has struggled with is understanding the cost of production. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, see an aggregate number come out, which I'm sure is trying to be thoughtful of taking into consideration what costs are in one place versus another versus another. But the reality is there is no aggregate price that's going to be accurate um, from country to country, let alone like in Ali's case studies, the cost of production in versus those in Vayinka and Cusco are two completely different things. There's fundamental difference in their costs and what it, what it takes. Uh, to get there. Um, next questions from Sergey. I don't know if I understand the end of it, but maybe you're still on and can help us with it. We talked about this in the beginning though. This question is, as a roaster, how does FOB pricing allow me to make a more informed relational based coffee buying decision? Where does the FOB price originate? And how is the value of each part of FOB defined? I'm not sure what that last part means. Maybe one of the ads there. Um, anyone want to jump in on that? I'm also happy to. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that like, I, I would get, I would just say like, for me, it's like knowing, you know, knowing who you're buying from and, uh, you know, relational based to me, that's key. So if you know who you're getting their coffee from and do they know where they're buying their coffee? Um, if a B price originates in different places, I don't know. Sure I think I maybe if you mean where does the term originate, it means free on board. So it's the cost of the coffee on a boat. Um, where does it originate? Like who makes it? That is the exporter who defines what the FOB price, because that's how they sell contractually. Um, farm gate transportation and all of those costs are all prior to FOB, milling, shipment preparation. Um, so how the value is defined, I guess, is by the individual participant. But where it starts is what, what price is being delivered back to the farm, farm gate pricing. 
what are the costs from the farm gate in terms of transportation, in terms of milling and shipment prep, in terms of transportation from there to the port. Uh, all of that stuff is going to be different depending on where you work. Uh, so uniform FOB price uh, in Colombia, that's supposed to be relative to Ethiopia or Rwanda or El Salvador is like really mm, incoherent, to be honest. Um, I don't know, Sergey. If that doesn't answer your question, please feel free to follow up, and, and we'll hit that next. Oh, there you are. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, we have another question. Recently, I participated in a local panel discussion where a fellow roaster told the attendees, mostly consumers and shop owners, that in at least ninety percent, in at least ninety percent of cases, the producer receives a price not much lower than FOB. I'm far from an expert on this topic, but this was perplexing to me. Can you unpack what you think might be behind this point of view and give us your thoughts on how we should be talking about this with our customers and colleagues? Uh, tough one. I don't know all of the participants here. Uh, just like truth from the heart, that's not really accurate. 90% um, of cases, the producer receives a price not much lower than FOB. It's just like, that's just really gonna be hard to define, number one, and two, like just highly unlikely. Now, like everything behind this question is kind of pure speculation from our end to answer it, which makes it tricky, but uh, no, there's it's just, it's an impossibility to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think if the case study that this whatever roaster is basing that statement on is one, let's say, let's say a 100 hectare farmer or even a 50 hectare farmer in Costa Rica that can export his or her own coffee uh, and even potentially import their own coffee, um, then maybe that's somewhat true. Um, but that's one particular case. You know, I think the, the I think, you know, the scale really depends a lot of, on and, and the farm and what, what, at what level the farmer, you know, is participating in the supply chain. If the farmer is also a miller and also an exporter, doing all that you know i mean that would that would make sense to me maybe 90 percent is if not you know is going to the farmer and then their other 10 percent of costs are labor and things like that. yeah i have a hard time believing that really in any context not that i'm speaking about this out loud but uh yeah i, I think that's a tough question to answer not being there for the original conversation i kind of don't want to touch it much. yeah um uh, I think Allie laid out some really good examples and I, I don't know what the definition of not that much lower than FOB is, but okay. in the case of Ienka where we're paying 245 FOB and going back to the farmers, a uh, dollar 76, there's, there's still, you know, a gap there. Um, that, that, that is the difference between FOB and farm gate uh, and obviously costs to the farmer themselves. Yeah. I mean, theoretically a higher FOB price should translate to a higher price per farmer. But I think that is what we're all talking about that our concern is, is that there's a lot of space for manipulation of that. If, if the industry is saying we, we will only buy higher FOB prices. Okay. But someone could potentially manipulate that really have like, sure, we'll charge you more, but then that doesn't I don't want mean... to go further on that question. Yeah. Um, Next question from our really great friend, Johnny Coegos in Peru. Hello, Johnny, good to hear from you. Um, he says, we know it's a challenge for producers to receive a fair price. 
However, now there are technologies that can verify the real price that is being paid to the producer. Do you consider this a possibility to trust the blockchain platform to collect this information? Really pertinent question for uh, right now in this period, blockchain is the real thing. Uh, at least it's a real thing in terms of, of very serious conversations being had in the industry for at least the last couple of years. Um, I'm interested in blockchain. I know a lot of people at Red Fox are very interested in blockchain, probably more than me. I'm uh, skeptical by nature. So I'm, I've yet, and I haven't had that many conversations myself directly, but I'm, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with people to understand if they actually understand the realities of the coffee industry and how the supply chain works, especially how it varies from origin to origin or region to region, which is now a theme in this conversation today, um, to collect the inf information transparently and how it goes um, from there. I like how will the information be used? How will it transform the industry? Um, I think there's a lot of potentially positive things here, but it's all, it's all TBD. It's left to be unfolded. I don't think it's like, let's move right now to blockchain and do this thing and think that we have a solution. I really don't personally. That's my personal opinion. My, the opinion of the other panelists here might even be different than that, which I'm open to hearing. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that having like that ease of knowing the farm gate price is a huge step forward if we're comparing it to FOB price. But you get back to that same issue of context. Like if a consumer is able to scan a QR code and know every price along the way, inevitably you're going to think that a higher price to the producer is is better but you don't have the context to know like is that a marilu or is that a pablo you don't have the context to know what those um costs of like the different cost of production is depending on the producer and also like the general contest context in terms of cost of living and and what kind of an income you need to have a good quality of life in different places like you're never going to know that from scanning and getting a few numbers on a QR code. So from that side, it seems a little bit dangerous to me because it would require like so much education on a consumer, on the consumer side. And I think like more than we could ever expect um, consumers to be educated on. Could it be a mechanism that keeps buyers in line? I think that's ultimately the upside of the thing. But I think mm -hmm. there needs to be more understanding first, personally. I think... This is a, maybe an origin-based question from Leo Duranti. Roasters seem very concerned about farmers' cost of production, but nobody is asking roasters what their cost of production is to justify $20 for a bag of coffee. Should roasters start being more transparent about their cost of production too? Uh, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, this might be a controversial answer, but like farmers, I think a lot of roasters don't understand their cost of production perfectly. You know, maybe that's changed a lot, but it used to be the case. Um, and I'm, you know, I don't know if smaller to medium sized roasters really understand what it costs exactly for them to produce a bag all of the time. In terms of getting from whether they're paying two or three or four or five or $6 a pound for the green coffee and then getting to $20 or whatever the price is, Sure, um, sure. I think if there's more to understand around that, it maybe it'd be more helpful for me, but I could do it. Not a great answer for me, but 
don't know if the other three panelists have thoughts. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know who is who would be asking this. I don't know if consumers are asking the questions about cost of production for farmers. I think it, to me, it's being driven by the industry. But maybe maybe I'm out of touch on that. Um, so I, you know, should consumers ask a roaster what their cost of productions are? I mean, I think that a consumer would have a better understanding of what living wages are in the U.S. compared to what having a lack of understanding of what living wages are in another country, um, you know, rent prices in New York versus Kansas. I, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of different things to look at there and everyone's charging the similar amounts of money. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack for sure. I don't have a, a good answer on that either. Let's take a couple more questions. Um, before we sign off, it's been a good discussion so far. We're already an hour deep, almost. Um, from our good buddy, AJ at Parlor. Given cost of living and production variance throughout countries, let alone the regions within the countries, do you believe it is misleading for a roaster to present farm gate pricing to the end consumer without context you presented? The context. Do you have any examples of roasters who present supply chain economics to the end consumer with clarity and transparency? Good question, AJ. I don't, yeah, I don't know. And I don't know because I haven't done the homework, to be honest. Um, Zach, Adams? Well, I mean, I, you know, I would say that Counterculture is definitely a roaster that's been providing a transparency report for a lot of years now before there was, I think, you know, peer pressure to do so. And it went beyond just kind of like, certification when that was kind of the leading thing at the time. They put a lot of research into it. They show you year over year pricing, things like that. I think, you know, if you're a roaster who can show that you understand your supply chain in a, in a, in a honest, authentic way to your customers, I think it, I think it resonates. I think to me, the, the key is building trust with people who buy your coffee and, or, you know, every day and um, showing them that you have a story and that you understand where you're getting your coffee from. But uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, there's not a, I don't, not lately seeing a ton of examples from roasters that are presenting it in a very clear way, to be honest. But I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's misleading um, to present, you know, farm gate pricing to an end consumer, but I, I do think it would raise questions if you said a farmer is receiving $1.80, which could be a very good price in context, and that coffee to them in the bag is $20, you know, $20 for a bag. I think it could raise a lot of questions. Um, so if without providing all those contexts, including cost of production of the roaster, like was mentioned, could be, you know, could be raise a lot of questions. I don't know. It's a hard one. And based on the case studies that we just talked about today, it's a very complicated um, uh, uh, supply chain. A lot goes into just FOB price. Um, just as uh, a lot goes into X warehouse, just as a lot goes into like the final bag of coffee to the consumer. Um, and so it's, there's just a lot of information for a typical consumer who's coming in for a cup of coffee to try and absorb who's not connected to this industry or to the supply chain. Um, I think, um, yeah, and everybody along the way um, that, that is taking ownership or risk uh, um, of the coffee is taking some risk and deserves uh, some, some margin as part of uh, being a player in, in the supply chain. It's just a matter of is, 
is the is the correct amount going back to uh, at the the farm gate level? Um, friend of the family, Daria Torres, is asking if any other industries have similar dynamic have a similar dynamic. I'm not sure what exactly that pertains to, Daria. Maybe clarify for us, and we'll we'll answer that. Coffee is really unique and really challenging because it does come from so many places and it's perishable. I think that's one thing it's never really gotten credit for in its history is that it's, it's not, we're not just dealing with a grain that can be stored. Um, it's, you know, in order to pay more money for it, it's got to taste better and, and be fresh all the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging. Joel brings up a point here. I don't know if Ali, if you want to touch on this one. I think I think this is important um, in RJ's FOB as a metric newsletter. Um, one of the more important points, and I think it's a differentiating point for for not just Red Fox, but a lot of people in our in our set in our niche, um, is that necessary operational margins can be represented in either FOB or X warehouse pricing, and therefore those numbers are relative. For example, an integrated exporter importer could deposit all costs into FOB without raising the farm rate. So I think can you say more about that? And I think I think what Joel's alluding to is that this is the issue with using FOB as a standard for sustainability in the nutshell. Is that the FOB isn't answering that question alone. Am I paying a sustainable price? to the producer. There's actually zero correlation between one thing and the other thing. Um, well, Ali, if you have thoughts on the costs or any little details in there. Yeah, I just think there's so many different models. I mean, in Peru, we're working through cooperatives and associations, but only 30% of producers belong to cooperatives and associations. And so they're all fitting into that, like the models that that I went through earlier of Copam and Valle Inca where, where the cooperative is covering everything from the coffee being delivered or picked up through to export. But there are another 70% of producers who are working through um, a different model just in Peru. And, and those producers might be selling to a local trader. There might be a few traders in the middle before even the coffee gets milled. And so the um, like there can be such a disconnect and the FOB price might be be going up, but there's like there's absolutely no reason or or like way to verify that 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 correlates to a higher a higher price for the producer. It's just I feel like they're they're totally separate things. Right. You know, like we have our FOB price, and maybe just at Red Fox, like we're selling our coffee at a higher price or a lower price. There's no correlation there. Just um. I think it's yeah i mean the brass tax you want to trim all the fat off of it is that let's say a buyer says our new standard is three dollars fob that's our minimum standard we do three dollars or better that doesn't mean that the middle supply chain on uh the export milling side wherever intermediary buying coyotes anywhere between the farmer and the port isn't keeping the lion share of the money so to say we're doing a $3 minimum 
FOB and that's our standard, that's great in some ways, but that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that there's any guarantee to the farmer in terms of sustainable prices getting back. Um, that's kind of the meat and potatoes of, of RJ's uh, piece as well. If you boil it down to one, one point. It's a, it's a can, go, ahead. go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's, a, it's obviously a, a very convenient, easy metric to, uh, uh, to, to find and look at. Uh, but as we've all just described is it just because it's easy and convenient doesn't, doesn't make it meaningful. Um, there's so much that goes into what actually, uh, our, we need to be focusing on, which is the farm gate itself. Yeah. We have, I'm going to take a question from our buddy, Celso Carrasco in Southern California. And then, uh, if there's, there'll be time for one more after that, if someone wants to get one in and then we're going to wrap it up. So fire away. Celso says, being that speed of delivery is of utmost importance for Red Fox, if this is a portion, if this portion of this is post FOB, I'm not sure if I'm reading that right. How much does cost of delivery influence the final cost of, for roasters? Does this fluctuate and how is, the, how is this addressed when coffees have been forward contracted? I don't know if I understand that. Um, so the cost of delivery, um, we would build, we would, so yeah, the, the after at least port, if you're talking about the cost of the coffee getting into the U S would be represented in their X warehouse price that we talked about the price out of the warehouse, not FOB. So the speed, I mean, there's speed at every, every point in the supply chain. We have to, we have to make sure things move quickly and efficiently, but for, I mean, as an example, we will pay for a higher shipping cost for a more direct route. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe that speaks a little bit to his question. So I we'll think pay, we'll pay 10 cents a pound more to get the coffee there in five days as opposed to 30. Right. So we pay a lot of attention to shipping routes. Yeah. We, we would pay up to 10 or 15 cents max for a faster route for, especially for coffees coming from Africa, which is a much more harder route and there's a lot more risk involved. The risk is a big part of the speed. You know, we always say it's really easy to cup of beautiful coffee, it's really difficult for us to get the coffee in that same condition into your roaster. That's what the success of Red Fox is, is predicated on. So we'll pay a little bit more for that, but really it's about our time spent, our strategy, and how we move in the producing countries we're working in and getting the coffees here. You know, like having all the Western Ethiopias now that are available on both coasts. You know, that's a, a big part of us being able to have success as a business move forward. Everyone wants pressure to go right now. Um, how it influences your final cost is not, is not substantial in any way whatsoever. It's just us doing our diligence and we believe that that's what our value is to you as a roaster. I think that's a great example of, of this question of FOB price because if we were exporting the coffee, all of those costs could be included in the FOB price. Um, yes. And, and our margin. Yeah, and so you there you would see a higher FOB price, but it doesn't mean that the money is going back to the farmer. It would just mean that like, I mean, in Peru, it's me and a team of five people and there's like, there's a ton of work going on on the ground um, to make the coffee move quickly, to select the coffees, to ensure the quality, and none of that is captured in the FOB price. 
really, really critical point, Ali. Yeah, that's huge. Thank you. Tom Booth, do you guys sell coffee in Europe yet? We have. We have a couple import partners that we've worked with in the past, and we definitely would love to do more. If you um, would write us an email, info at Red Fox Coffee Merchants. Maybe Zach, will you type that in there? And we'd love to talk to you. We would, we would be happy to sell coffee in Europe. Any last parting shot before we go? Should I expect my importers to share FOB? Um, it's a fair question to ask. I don't know. Well, I mean, they're all our competitors. So I, I mean, whatever I would say would have to be taken with a grain of salt. Like we, we want to provide as much transparency as possible at Red Fox, even down to the farm gate as much as possible. And we do that everywhere in Latin America. And eventually we'll be doing that everywhere in Africa. It's much more of an undertaking, but we'll get there. Um, should you expect them to? It's really your decision. It's really your decision to decide what you do, whether you get that information or not, is I guess my, my answer. Um, one last question from Leo. Any insight on the current effect of COVID-19 for specialty roasters and forecasts for future buying? That's the big question, Leo. Um, we are wading through this thing ourselves. You know, if we were, if we were ankles deep four or five weeks ago, maybe we're up to our waist at this point. And we're taking things kind of one week at a time as a business ourselves. Um, trying to understand what's going to happen. You know, it's really too easy, too hard, excuse me, too, too early to tell what is going to happen um, in the market. I will say from a positive standpoint, uh, I think that coffee is a resilient industry. And I think that people are going to stop drinking coffee anytime soon. I know a lot of our own clients have seen a massive uptick in online sales and grocery. Um, eventually hopefully cafes are open for business as usual the timing on that stuff i really don't know you know it's, it's really hard to say i know that's not a great answer but we kind of feel like we're still a little bit left in the dark daria came back and said that wine and chocolate were kind of what she was thinking yeah. come to mind our buddy ben in burundi asks what's the hardest country to export from and i would say you already know the answer man you live it. That's what you do. <laughs> uh, I haven't, we haven't done any work in Burundi in a while. Um, as you know, because you've got such a strong grip on it, but we, I can't, I don't remember a place that's been more difficult for me to work than Burundi. You know, Ethiopia has its tricky points, but we have really great partners. I feel like we're pretty successful. Bolivia is challenging. Bolivia can be very tricky. The trickiest in Latin America, by my, in my opinion. Good point, Adam. Being landlocked is, is always making things more difficult. All right, let's wrap it there. there. Do you have any last points you want to end on? It's great. Thanks, everybody. For, thanks for the talk. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back in two weeks. We're doing uh, a twice a month format now for this. Looking forward to seeing everyone again. Thank you so much. Bye.